Hey, it's Steve here. Wait, I've got something to tell you. As you know, this is the What Is Music podcast, and we believe music is everything, even if we don't know quite what it is yet. That's the whole point of the whole thing. But what we do know is that music can influence your emotional and physical well-being. Solfeggio and binaural beats create frequencies that have been found to help heal your body and alter your mood. Guided meditation can centre and calm your mind and soothe your soul. Melody Clouds brings you a massive collection of audiobooks and music files that include 17,000 classic novels and hand-picked authors narrated by professional voice actors. Get access to exclusive content on children's stories and classic Aesop's fables. Melody Clouds is translated into 140 languages and in more than 200 countries has a library that continues to expand monthly. Sign up now for a 60-day trial for just $2.99, then keep the music flowing for $5.99 a month. Their yearly membership is now $59.99 for a limited time. Join thousands of subscribers who have found the benefits of these frequencies. MelodyClouds.com. Download the iOS or Android apps for a limited time for free. Okay, everyone, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to What Is Music, a music podcast about music. No waffle at the beginning this time. We're a podcast that focuses on discographies in their entirety, doing deep dives on one artist at a time. And you join us in season four, which is called Is It Rad In Your Head? A critical analysis of the history, cultural impact and music of Radiohead. We are going through their entire career, album by album, track by track, and we're asking questions like, does context matter when you're listening to music? Does knowing the history of an artist affect your appreciation of their output? And this season, we're of course asking, is it rad in your head? And to be clear, we're asking, is it rad in your head in regards to the band Radiohead? And not, is it rad in your head in regards to this, the fourth season of our podcast, which is called, is it rad in your head? And which is now in your head. I'm Adam Scott Glass, but it's just me today. Everybody's on holiday, uh, including myself. Um, and that's it. We're actually kind of deep into season five so actually that intro was quite difficult for me i need i nearly said you know uh the title of season five which i'm not going to tell you um welcome back to the podcast thank you hello everybody who's listening we've got something a little bit different today in our quest to cover the entire discography of radiohead which we've kind of finished we've got a few solo album sort of things left to left to go but today we are talking to dr brad osborne uh brad osborne is Associate Professor of Music Theory and Affiliated Faculty in American Studies at the University of Kansas. And you're probably thinking, great, that's, that's brilliant, good for him. But also, he's the author of the book, Everything in Its Right Place, Analyzing Radiohead. And that's obviously why we want to talk to him. Uh, you know, this guy is obviously uh, a professor of music theory, has written a book about Radiohead. So we wanted to get some insights because his book... Um, Kind, it, it tries to demonstrate that Radiohead's music exhibits this musical Goldilocks zone, um, presenting the listener with myriad surprises while at the same time satisfying a number of expectations inherited from both popular and classical music. Uh, and this is just a chat between me and Brad. And we go through some of the songs that uh, he picked out as being like the best examples of that Goldilocks zone, I guess, or, or the ones that are kind of really worth digging your teeth into. And it's great to get his perspective on some of this. And we talk about things like time signatures and, you know, composition and experimental music and pop music and stuff like that. Um, and I hope I hope you enjoy the chat. 
I enjoyed it. I'd never t- spoken to him before, but he's such an interesting guy. Um, he's he's got other books as well, uh, interpreting music video. Uh, he's written the textbook American Popular Music, and there's something forthcoming, uh, which is called Popular Music Theory, um, which we dig into a little bit. We dig into a little bit at the end of of the interview. Um, and he's a musician himself as well. Uh, he's a multi instrumentalist. He kind of it's kind of a solo project, kind of a band in that it's a full band sound, but he records all the instruments himself. Uh, he's known as Dark Epelago, which we didn't actually cover at all because we were focusing on his musical analysis. We were focusing on Radiohead. Uh, so without further ado, let's get stuck into that. The next voice you'll, you'll hear will be part of the conversation between me and Dr. Brad Osborne, author of Everything in Its Right Place, Analyzing Radiohead. Hi, Brad. How are you? How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Adam? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm good. I, uh, I look, time zones, not my speciality. Uh, I turned up an hour ago like an idiot because <laughs> I forgot about, <laughs> I forgot about daylight savings time. And you're joining us from, uh, you're joining us from where? Sorry, remind me. I'm joining you from the University of Kansas. And how is the University of Kansas? Well, it's beautiful spring day right now. Everything's in bloom. It's lovely. Oh, amazing. Uh, you you have a doctorate in music theory. Uh, Indeed. So I have a feeling, right, that uh, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit above my <laughs> my pay grade in terms of, like, musical theory, musical analysis. So if it's okay with you, I kind of want to start at the real basics with my uh, first question. So. Brad, what is music? Wow, I was not <laughs> expecting that question. Um, so my uh, most annoying answer is that it is frequency and amplitude over time. God, that's a really annoying answer, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That opens up uh, such a, a huge range of things that people would not ordinarily consider music, right? Like human speech then becomes music um basically every sound becomes music but um now here's well here's something interesting that i think we're going to kind of return to over, over the course of this of this little conversation is that that is a very um sort of technical answer to it right and you're right like that encompasses kind of a lot and that is kind of a very academic answer to it is that how you kind of respond to music in that very strict strictly sort of academic way or like you must be kind of everybody's first experience of music is primarily emotional right right no and, and my definition there was just taking a piss i um <laughs> actually uh my 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 working definition of music that i think of is more human and it's uh music is anything that someone considers to be music Holy shit, that is uh, one, one of the deepest answers that we've ever had. And two, one of the biggest cop-outs I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, let me explain a little bit then. Because I, what, what, what I love about it is it works from a composer's perspective and a listener's perspective. So imagine the composer sitting down like, say, John Cage to write uh, four minutes and 33 seconds. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So he's considering that music. And so historically, maybe we should think of that as a musical composition. But on the other hand, 
from the listener's perspective, if a listener is walking through the forest and hears a couple birds singing back and forth to each other in a quite musical way, to that listener, that was music. But now we're doing away with the compositional side because we don't quite care what the bird's compositional intent was. Right. Although I would say that maybe their intent is communication. And my kind of personal um, answer for what is music is that it's some kind of form of communication that kind of goes beyond words. So maybe we're kind of on the the same page in, in that regard. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I think that... Uh, the John Cage one is is an interesting example as well because I th- I'm sure that I've read somewhere that like it's almost not composed right it's like a it's a conceptual thing where anything that happens in the four minutes and thirty three seconds on each occasion that it's performed is the composition is that right that, or am I completely that's right. off on that's that? right that's right that's, okay that's totally right. So he actually really didn't do anything, really. Like, it's, it's he, very much, yeah, I mean, it's an idea, had, isn't it? Sure. He had the foresight to realize what would happen within those 44 minutes and 33 seconds, which is, yeah. you know, quite a lot, actually. It's, yeah, everything. Uh, didn't, uh, we can dive into Radiohead territory really quickly as well. Tom York appears on a cover of 4 minutes and 33 seconds, right? Uh, that's news to me. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, there's. The, I, I can't remember what it was for. It would have been for some kind of charity event, and it was almost inevitably organized by Brian Eno. But it's <laughs> uh, it's a YouTube video. I'm sure I'm sh- I, it might have it might be lost to the the you know the archival uh, systematic taking down of all these old videos on the internet. But um, there was a YouTube video that was four minutes and thirty three seconds long that was. John Cage's four minutes, 33 seconds. It had all these famous people. I think Pete Doherty was involved. And it's kind of a few seconds of each person that was involved just staring at the camera in <laughs> silence. And Tom York is one of them. Um, but that, we can save Radiohead for a little bit because I, I, I am interested in kind of what your earliest memories of music are or the first thing that you'd consider yourself like a fan of, the first thing that you really got into, you know? Yeah. And the first thing I really got into was, don't make fun of me, but the pop punk band Green Day put out their first record, Dookie, when I was in junior high. And I bought t-shirts, I bought a CD. I mean, I was I was all in. That's fine. You, I, I'm not going to make fun of you for that. I thought you were going to say something truly awful. But Green Day, you know, not to my taste, absolutely fine. How old were you when you when you first heard them? So, uh, let's see, seventh grade, um, 13, I suppose. And I think what probably makes that memorable for me is it was the time that I was starting to play music myself. So, you know, you had these pretty easy guitar riffs and I had a guitar and I could figure those out. feel like I was kind of part of the music. Uh, the drum parts are fast, but not complex. And so I was able to figure those out. And also, you know, as a 13 year old, you're just quite impressionable. Yes. And also 13 perfect age for green day i would argue i would I'd argue that's that's the real sweet spot for green day but if i mean so you start playing music quite young then is is that is that a musical family or what what is that my mom would say that we came from a musical family but um it was only a singing sort of family but my brother and i both around the same time um picked up guitar drums and bass and we were always trying to one up each other on those instruments so when he got a little too good, you know, at guitar, I would double down on the drums and then 
then he would try to leapfrog me on the drums. It was it was good competitive nature we had. But God bless my mom. There were, you know, two drum sets in our house, often playing at the same time in different rooms. Ooh. Yeah, it's like a, like the king of limbs in your house. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, so so how, how do you get then? Do you know what? They're not that far apart, right? It's kind of alternative rock. But how? what's your journey from those kind of formative Green Day years to Radiohead? Yeah, it's it's not so straightforward. I was, um, like many people, a subscriber to this BMG Music Club where they would just send you a handful of CDs and then you could keep them, you know, and pay whatever, or you could send them back. Right. And uh, I got to tell you, they sent the Benz and I listened and I sent it back. Did not love it. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, I was at this point getting in more into punk, more into hardcore punk, more into metal, more into tool, more into like heavy technical stuff. And right. this kind of Brit Rocky sounding pop thing was just not my jam. I mean, they could have sent me Blur, Oasis, or Radiohead. I would have sent them all back, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't until... Uh, I was in college and Kid A had come out and my my friend said, hey, you got to listen to this new Radiohead album. It's totally weird. And I was at first like, oh, Radiohead, like I gave that a chance a while back. But then, of course, like everyone else, track one starts. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? Absolutely. That's it's a whole different thing. That's interesting. Actually, I had noticed that. Um, so in, in our like very brief email discussions, you kind of sent me a list of songs on which you felt you'd be able to speak or which or which you're passionate about and and we'll kind of work through them a little bit later on in the episode because i'm really interested in your perspective on them but the first thing that struck me was starts in the year 2000 which which is of course the post rock band kind of uh the radiohead how does that line up with like the analysis of their work does, does it does it speak to your preferences that, that that's how you listen to music or what's going on there yeah i mean and and i sort of will go back to 1997 and appreciate o computer okay computer through the lens of what was almost today like in other words i'm right. li- i'm i'm listening to that for almost a mm, abandoned training that was almost the point where i liked them but when I when I wrote the book, um, I was asked by the editors to go back and, what, you don't talk at all about Pablo Honey or the Benz. What is up with that? And my quick answer was like, well, there's nothing that interesting on there. And they're like, that's fine if you believe that, but can you kind of explain <laughs> it to the reader um, why exactly you don't think it's interesting or more specifically why it's different than what appears on their records from 2000 and later? And what is that? Well, I mean, if you look at the band's music on those first two records in terms of kind of these categories of musical analysis, uh, song form, harmony, rhythm, even instrumental timbres, they're all very much conventional and mainstream. In other words, you could find exactly those same sorts of elements in Blur, in Oasis, in Nirvana, in the Pixies. Um, It isn't really until 1997, OK Computer, but especially Kid A 2000, that they start really inventing something new with those things and you know we can talk about what exactly those new rhythms are those new song forms are those new instrumental timbres but that's to me where the band becomes um more experimental and quite innovative yeah absolutely there's a complete 
sea change between OK Computer and uh, Kid A. But I, uh, it's interesting, actually, drawing back to what you said about kind of uh, the intentionality of an artist creating music. I've always kind of seen that, that like OK Computer and Kid A are from this almost kind of like a very similar headspace. They're kind of aiming for similar things, but they're using completely different tools. Um, so kind of how much of, I don't know, have a, have a good way to phrase this. <laughs> how interested are you in the tools as opposed to the intention? Yeah, I think far more interested in the tools uh, than the intention. And there are a couple of reasons why I don't normally speak about uh, artist intention. And one of them is that, um, well, like the rest of us, artists have poor memories. And if you tried to ask anyone, if you could get a hold of anyone in in Radiohead, if you tried to ask them what they were thinking when they wrote (laughs) Karma Police, can you imagine being asked what you were thinking, you know, uh, 25 years ago? Uh, right um, yeah i yeah, mean the, the the thing that radiohead will tell you is like i mean the the question that they're asked so often and it's almost kind of a shitty question is like how did you make the one of the greatest albums of all time you know like questions like that and uh the answer they'll almost always give you is like well we weren't we were just standing in a room trying to figure out what we were doing uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion over the course of this season that Radiohead are a bit inept, like they're a bit, <laughs> like they're a bit shit, because so so much of the stories from the studio are them going like, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing for like three months, and we were just in there trying to figure it out. And I suppose that the thing that they change the most often is not the intention, because the intention is always to figure out new stuff. It's the tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. Like, I, I, it makes sense to then focus on. Those tools, I suppose, right? Yeah. Well, and the other reason to kind of mistrust intention is that artists are notorious for making up answers about their intention that make them seem a certain way. Um, so Tom York is especially bad at this. If you ask him about something, you know, very complicated about his music, he'll say something like, oh, people are always stroking their beards about it. It's just fucking rock music, man. Yeah. Uh, right. to, to seem like an aloof rock star. And I, you know, I guarantee you he thinks about these things. Um. Or people can do the opposite, actually. Someone can come across a happy accident and then make up sort of post hoc a really complex music analytical framework for that music to sound more cerebral and more intellectual than they might have been when they were writing it. Can you ever, can you tell from the songs? Can you kind of get an idea of when there's a grand plan behind something and when there isn't? Oh, that's tough, uh, especially with Radiohead, because so much of their stuff seems to be, at least in the the later work, a bit stitched together. Uh, and especially if you look at Tom York's solo stuff, you know, he would do this. He would invite people in the studio to record kind of bits and fragments and then send them on their way. You imagine right. having Flea in for a day to play bass and like, all right, Flea, that's all I need from you. And then making an album, kind of treating those things as samples. I mean, Kid A is full of that kind of stuff where it was just improvs. Uh, left on the cutting room floor and then pieced back together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. It's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's very assembled as opposed to uh, written. But then I suppose that is, that's composing, right? That's like... It sure is, com- yeah. But it's different than like, say, a 
we don't have much of this these days, but back in the day, songs used to be written by like one person, you know? It's very different than that kind of singer, songwriter. I sat down in my basement one day and this lightning bolt hit me and uh, came out, you know? That's not how Radiohead works. No, it's kind of five people sat around waiting for a lightning bolt to hit all five right. of them at the same <laughs> for time. For three months. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, oh, we went off into like a, we've done it already. We've got off into a huge Radiohead tangent, which I suppose is not, a huge surprise for uh, an interview with the author of a book about Radiohead on a Radiohead <laughs> podcast. But also, I'm interested in t- in how you got from like, hey, I'm listening to Kid A for the first time and it sounds pretty cool and the tools they're using are interesting, and how you got from there to music theory doctorate writing a book about Radiohead. What's the, yeah, what's the journey there? That's a great question. Um... So I had gone to grad school for music theory and composition because I fancied myself a, a capital C composer. And all of a sudden, I was you know, in these classes where we had to write research papers, we were expected to do a thesis, and all of my classmates were working on classical music because that's in the early 2000s what our field was composed of. I used to fall asleep at night listening to music. I can't imagine doing that anymore. But Idiotech came on from 2000s Kid A. And I had been reading these articles about in classical music when you have kind of one layer that's in a different time signature than the other. And I'm lying awake listening to Idiotech and I heard that same thing going on in in this music. And I ended up writing a master's thesis on that that concept. It's called metrical dissonance in Idiotech. And this was pretty cutting edge back then. The field of music theory was very much classical focused, and now 20 years later, it's almost entirely the opposite. It's uh, the world has come to accept the kind of work that I do. And so it was fairly easy to get into a PhD program when I said I wanted to continue working on Radiohead and other experimental rock music. I wrote a, a PhD dissertation on experimental rock music, and I was hired at the University of Kansas when they were looking for a music theorist with expertise in popular music analysis. So, I mean, in some way, my, my master's thesis was blazing a trail that was, that was not, uh, not an established one. But by the time it, time it came for me to get on the job market, um, field of music theory was very open to analyzing popular music. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. I suppose, oh, it's, it's, it's interesting, actually, that, that like, Radiohead are a pop band i suppose uh because <laughs> because to so many people they are so uh inaccessible you know right um which i suppose is what makes them so interesting is that they have a kind of there's a level of success that very few bands reach for radiohead and even fewer bands that are as experimental as radiohead reach it's they they inhabit this weird cross section of kind of pushing boundaries, but also filling stadiums, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's like an odd kind of mix. Is, is that something that, uh, is that something that, uh, uh, appealed to you that, that, that mix? What, I mean, what, what makes Radiohead? I mean, this is a, this is a really facetious question, Brad. <laughs> it's it's going to be like, uh, I'm not trying to be like we're on Newsnight or anything. Uh, what is it that makes Radiohead worth analyzing in the first place? Do you reckon? Yeah, well, I mean, what you said is pretty spot on. And as often, if I if I have two seconds in an elevator, or two sentences in an elevator, that's kind of my pitch, yeah. is that they inhabit what I call a Goldilocks zone between 
convention and experimentation. Right. right. And I, th- I think they are the only band since the Beatles to sell out stadiums, but also have people so interested in the level of experimentation of their music that uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. Why do you think that doesn't happen? Because you have plenty of bands who, s- well, that, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I have wondered, I've wondered sometimes if it's, um, if it would have to look totally different in this day and age of music distribution, right? Because Radiohead at their, the height of the popularity was, was still capitalizing on the CD. And of course yep. they get, in, they move beyond that and everything, but there was still this point kind of late in the CD's lifespan where people were spending money on that sort of thing. And I just don't know what an artist would have to do right now to get that, popular but with similarly experimental music it's not hard to imagine an artist getting hugely popular in fact way more popular than radiohead now what's hard to imagine is that an artist would do it with the level of experimentation that radiohead did i suppose there's something to be said for what you touched on earlier which is that you know when you were writing the book the publisher came back to you and said okay you've not really mentioned pablo honey or the bends their first kind of batches of music not that experimental, you know, very populist kind of, yeah. right? Um, yeah, and I think that you have to do that to to make OK Computer. Certainly to make Kid A, you had to have uh, millions of fans already on board with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have, um, it's, it's, a, it's a sentence that we've, or, or a phrase that we've used a lot on this podcast. And I think I saw Stephen Hyden, I think, uh, coined it in his, in his Kid A book, This Isn't Happening. Fuck you, credibility is what they have. <laughs> like they they've built up mm-hmm. such a fan base and such a critical, um, like such an amount of respect from critics that they can just kind of do what they want. But it always takes that first leap, and I think, I think the first leap is okay, computer to some degree. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the 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 leap to Kid A is much more noticeable where you could like yeah. point at it and go like, oh, they're weird now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Oh, na- now they're being experimental, you know? That's what's tricky about OK Computer. It kind of looks both forward and backward. You can yep. certainly hear their legacy as a guitar rock band. That's not hard mm-hmm. at all. But you can, again, there's kind of clues for where they're headed three years afterward, you know? Yeah, I think... Um... I almost think that the leap from the Benz to OK Computer is in some ways bigger than the leap from OK Computer to Kid A. Or I'm just trying to be pithy mm. and sound bitey. Could be. Yeah. Sounds like the latter one, to me. Really. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> think there's much in that, to be honest with you, Brad. I think I'm talking shit. <laughs> but um, uh, Kid A uh, is, like I said, like the one that you, you kind of point to and go, okay, this is their first truly kind of transcendently we are no longer a rock band we are an experimental i think we use the word art collective on one of our Mm. episodes right um and the two kind of biggest departures on that album are everything in its right place which of course you named your book after that is quite an alarming opening to that album but also idiotech um which uh I mean, 
I was I'm I was not around at the time. Like I was not a Radiohead fan at the time. But that must have kind of blown people's minds a little bit hearing Idiotech having just come from Karma Police, right? Sure. I, I mean, uh, the first thing you can say about it is that there is, uh, well, doesn't sound like there's any guitar in there, right? And so, what's yeah? What's what's the what's like the one thing we associate with rock music, right? It's the guitar, more specifically, maybe the distorted electric guitar, um, and that's simply not present. What's another thing we associate with rock music? Uh, acoustic drums, also not yep. there. Right. So what do we have in that track? Well, we have we have a lead vocal part, which good. I'm glad we kept that. But yep. the rest um, is this is one of the only Radiohead songs that starts as a Johnny Greenwood experiment. So it's it's kind of, a, if I recall correctly, something like a nearly an hour long tape of electronic improvisations by Johnny Greenwood that Tom kind of cut up into small parts and um, started singing over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is such a completely different way to the way that they had uh worked before and i think like that is maybe the most again it's something it's a totem for that album something you can point to and go like ah they're doing electronic music or they're doing like music that is akin to kind of the warp record stuff from the 90s maybe or whatever you right. know, your apex twins and your square pushes well but and then- i think that mo- most of your listeners know this but just in case people don't you know the main four chords from idiotech um, are not a composition by anyone from Radiohead. It's actually a sample um, yes. from a 1973 electronic music record by Paul Lansky called Maldun Laisa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just the depth of where we are in terms of the <laughs> crate-digging nerdery of Johnny Greenwood at this moment. There's another There's another tiny one as well, right? And I can't remember off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm sure you know it, but the bit that goes... We, we played it on the episode, the bit that goes... Dip, 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 yeah, that is also a sample from something it, else. It is um, <laughs> kind of the same genre of the thing I just mentioned. I think it's Arthur Kruger. Um, again, yes. just a tiny, insignificant, I don't say insignificant, a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of a much larger composition. And it's, for all of you, uh, all you geeks out there, it is very fun to listen to those original compositions and just marvel at the one to four second moment that Radio had sampled in context, you, your face, you know, inevitably lights up and you feel like, wow, that. We, we, we played it on the episode and the guys that I that are usually on, on the podcast with me, the guys that I host with, um, had never heard it before. And so we were listening to like a minute of just kind of that ambient, experimental, very like nascent days of electronic composition stuff. And I was like, wait for it, wait for it. And then it goes... And they went, oh, yeah, of course, there it is. But it's, it's, yeah, it is interesting, the tiny, like, bits that, that they pull out. And I think what's also interesting is that a lot of, there was kind of a, a slight, you know, from a certain kind of music listener or a certain kind of Radiohead fan, there was a bit of a rejection of Kid A, which has kind of come around now. But I think the criticism that was leveled at it was kind of, well, this isn't, not really rock music and like we've said like idiotech is a good good way to point that out but then something like the national anthem that's pretty i mean that's rock music right kind of it it passes as rock music like i it it all to me comes back to those kind of quantifiable elements i spoke of earlier and so in terms of rhythm you know it has a backbeat Mm. right so that's good uh it has an acoustic drum set 
not necessarily, but uh, you know, Tick. that's good. Check. Yeah. Song form, it gets a little weird, right? We have this right. verse, everyone, and then there's no chorus. Uh, no, and then after no, a while, no. Tom just stops singing and there's a jazz improv horn section. So form wise, yeah. that one kind of strays. And, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of rhythm and, and timbre, we're mostly there. Sorry. It's also kind of uh, the the thing that I associate with rock music is like you know rock music, and I'm <laughs> right. and I'm throwing up the horns and I'm describing them as well, um, and that's kind of the heaviest thing on Kid A as well, right? National anthem. It, it is the heaviest thing, yeah. Even if I mean, what what's closer to rock music in form on Kid A? Something like optimistic, maybe something like optimistic. Uh, usually thrown out there is like if people are trying to do you know this like. Well, of course, Radiohead now has Kid Amnesia, but back in the day, sure. people used to make their own single album-length mix of those two records, and one of the common strategies people would use was to pick out the most rock tunes, yeah. um, and Optimistic uh, always made it onto their... Yeah. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's the thing, is that Amnesiac does kind of represent um, a bit more... It's it's difficult. We've really struggled with Amnesiac over the course of this podcast, actually, mm. because the common criticism is like, oh, it's just a bunch of leftovers from the Kid A sessions. And I think that's too harsh, but also it is kind of a bunch of leftovers from the Kid A sessions in a way. Like it, it does, it kind of just has that inherent feel to it. I don't know, where, where do you land on, on Amnesiac? Well, I don't think of it as left... I don't think of either Kid A or Amnesiac as leftovers from one or the other. To mm. me, it's just uh, basically a double album because they recorded it all basically in the same sitting and then released it um, as they saw fit, which is two albums. I mean, this is why the two albums sound so exactly the same, right? Do they sound the same to you? I think that all- there's, there's very much the same kind of compositional spirit running through them. They... I think that a lot of what people think makes them different is stories they've told themselves about these records, you know, because they came in different packaging, so they must be different. They came out a year apart, they must be different, right? Right. But if you think about, for example, uh, if I asked you, does does Hey Jude sound a bit like the White Album? Uh, Well, yeah, a little bit. In places, right? So, So that was also, that's the same session we're talking about. Right, okay. Uh, hey, hey Jude yeah, yeah. doesn't appear on the White Album, but it was recorded exactly at the same time. Um, so, yeah. I just, I think there's, and it's, look, it's obviously a deliberate split. We're not uh, cracking anything wide open here, because, <laughs> you know, but uh, Kid A is so much colder and kind of more austere and even more esoteric than Amnesiac, if you ignore something like Pulk slash pull revolving doors. That's, um, that's, a, that's a lot to ignore, though, I'll say. I know. It's a difficult track to ignore. Um, right. Or um, even packed like sardines or. I think there's yeah, so d- much dollars and more... cents, hunting bears. Those are, those are pretty austere. They are, but also what all of those songs are, to a degree, for me, is guitar driven, right? Oh, yeah, fair. Okay. They're, yeah. Which. Which I think kind of you couldn't you couldn't say about a lot of the songs on on Kid A, yeah. um, which is interesting to me. It, it's uh, it it blows my mind that they were recording all of that material at the same time, 
and right. came away with what I think are kind of two disparate moods. Because where Kid A feels quite cold, I find Amnesiac to feel quite warm. I think of something like uh, I Might Be Wrong or um, Pyramid Song, I find to be very, very warm. Warm uh, is a great way songs. to describe that, yeah. But like you said, actually, yeah, 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 you're right. Like there's a similar kind of like, uh, maybe it's the thing we were talking about. Maybe it's intentionality, uh, and or like compositional spirit. Where, of course, something like <laughs> something like like spinning plates <laughs> is kind of almost completely uh, wrapped up in the process of it, rather than the emotion of it. Which is not to do that song mm. any disservice. I love that song, but that that that. Uh, song has a whole genesis story behind it which we kind of uh covered on the podcast but i'm i'm interested in your take on it because you are of course the author of a book which the subtitle of which is analyzing radiohead is that the the kind of stuff that you love like seeing it go from an early version of i will to being like reversed and ending up as like spinning plates is is, is that just the stuff that you're super into I mean, I do love talking about that. And anytime I'm asked to give like a, a book reading or, you know, talk to somebody who doesn't necessarily already know as much as you do, that's one of my first go-tos that I pull out. Like, oh my God, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to blow their minds with like the, the like spinning plates Genesis story. But yeah, I do. I do love that. Um, when my book came out, that early version of I Will hadn't quite surfaced in the internet yet, I believe. Um, the the version that Tom called Dodgy Kraftwerk. And so, yes. so here's where I got to really kind of nerd out about it analytically, as you say, which is I reversed the track and made my own transcription and cover of what I thought sort of forensically speaking, the original would have sounded like and I'm right. a lot, a lot of work to do it. And then of course, a couple of years later on YouTube, they've got the dodgy craft work version. And I, yep. I was like, Oh, you know, I will say I was, pr- I was pretty close though. I'll say that. So yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like a musical paleontologist over here or something. Yes, unearthing all of this, all of yeah. this stuff. I like that, a musical paleontologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a good analogy. Um, I mentioned it already, but Pyramid Song, and we can't breeze past Amnesiac without talking about Pyramid Song. Sure. Because you mentioned something uh, absolutely fascinating in your email to me, uh, and I'm going to read it out like verbatim, and it's not very long. It's, it's uh, like six words. But I think we, we're also probably going to jump forward in time to In Rainbows as well. Uh, okay. But you, say, you, you, you put Pyramid Song as one of, the, one of your songs that you can talk endlessly about, which I would love you to. And then you just put in brackets, the pyramid shape in the rhythm. Hmm. Now, Brad, what are you talking about, mate? <laughs> well, you've just, you've just hit upon my number two favorite kind of Easter egg to pull out. Um, <laughs> when I talk about Radiohead. And so to understand the pyramid shape in the pyramid song, let's first all agree what a pyramid is, right? It's, it's, it's a base, right? So how many yeah. sides is the, how many sides does the base have? It has four sides. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll go with you okay. on that one. We're all and, like, you know, I said we were going to get way above like my understanding of things and above my pay grade in terms of musical we, theory. We, we might We're get doing there. it Just, with shapes as well. Yeah. I, I don't, don't really truly understand what a pyramid is. But you all right, go so, for it, Brad. I'm so so I've got you know I've got a three year old, so I see him build these things all the time. You've got a four sided base, 
You've got precisely one of those. And then you need four triangles, right? Okay. So you put a triangle on each side of the four-sided base. That gives you four triangles. So the total it. number of shapes we have is one four-sided, four three-sided ones. Now, if I tap out the rhythm in the piano to Pyramid Song, da, 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 you've got that over and over and over again. Yeah. And that is four notes that last three eighth notes long, and one chord that lasts four eighth notes long. That's precisely uh, the number of vertices in a pyramid in exactly the same proportions. That, and I, I think I'm with you. <laughs> that is fascinating. Um, yeah, it, I, I, I can sing it for you. Let me count the eighth notes, okay? And I'm going to be swing, uh, so, so bear with me. So, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three. There you have okay. it. Three plus yep. three yep. plus four okay. plus three plus three. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's going to, in some way, marry back up to intentionality, I think. Because let's also talk about videotape, right? which is another mm -hmm. kind of, it's another song that, and we love them. This is not a derogatory term in any way. They are the primary base uh, of our listening audience. It's the thing that internet nerds <laughs> discuss uh, endlessly, <laughs> which is the rhythm in Pyramid sure. Song and the potential syncopation in videotape but you kind of right. You're like your you, your kind of take on that is that there actually kind of isn't any syncopation in videotape, and I'd like you to be slightly gentle because I must have spent about ten to fifteen minutes talking about the syncopation in videotape on the In Rainbows episode. So okay. <laughs> try not to okay. tear me apart too too viciously. But um, well, let's let, sure. let's talk about the what's going on rhythmically in videotape. So to the extent I understand the argument, uh, and this is coming from like Warren Lane's video, that, you know, if we find videotape of an old performance of the song, you can see Tom sort of nodding his head, but he's doing it a 16th note off of what a listener who just heard the In Rainbows version would, would be thinking the beat was. And he so asks the argument for the hi-hat, I think. He asks for the hi-hat to right. come in so that he can right. figure out where the one is, is my understanding. Sure. Of it. But again, not a musical theorist, Brett, I must stress. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so... So, I guess the most gentle thing I could say is for a certain kind of listener, namely someone who didn't know about this song before the album came out, uh, there's no way they're going to hear this shadow syncopation beat. Because the first time they're hearing this song in their life is when they sit down... Um, to listen to the 2007 album. I'll admit that that's me. I, I am not a bootleg enthusiast who sort of hears, you know, oh God, the Bonnaroo version of this I've been listening to for 10 years. I can't wait until... That's not me. And so, you know, my first experience with this is definitely on the album. Um, so a bit of this is an ontological argument. Is the song on In Rainbows the quote-unquote same song? as you're talking about from these YouTube performances or whatever. Right. Um, and if, 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 um, but then again, if you're the kind of listener, like I'm guessing you are, where you have been listening to various versions of that song 
over time, oh. then then sure you're used to feeling the beat a certain way, and uh, can, it's hard you to tell? write yourself. Yeah, can you, it's hard can you to tell write yourself kind of from that. Uh, there's there's kind of I think there's kind of uh, two things there, and 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 one one is that I am completely on board with uh, your interpretation of that because I've always felt that like look if you listen to the song as recorded on In Rainbows, where as far as you're aware the piano is on. Look, I'm gonna fuck up all my musical theory knowledge here. I'm feeling the real pressure uh, sat in front of you, Brad. But if if you just assume that the piano is on the on beat, right? Yeah, sure. And then on the old bootlegs, that would be reversed when you realise when the drums come in and they're on the off beat, for instance. Yeah. Right. Um, they also put the new drum part on the same beat that the piano is on on the recorded version. So surely mm-hmm. that just becomes the on beat, right? Ab- if you can't yeah. like. If the syncopation is not immediately apparent to you, then then it's not there, right? I, I kind of you know just because you feel it doesn't mean it's there, etc. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm I'm completely with you. The, the the thing is is that it's it's not just on the bootlegs that come from before in rainbows. One of them is from like after in rainbows, where they're performing it after the albums come out, and again Tom is trying to find where the beat is in his head. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that also comes back to intentionality because for Pyramid Song, and I love the idea of the pyramid shape in the rhythm, but if you listen to Phil talk, he'll go, it's in 4-4. Four, four. And sure. you can, and, and, and the drum part, like you can hear him banging it out on the, on the ride. There's, there's like a section in it where it's pretty easy to hear that it's in 4-4. It's in four, four. And I'm wondering if there is, a friction there between what the band hear and what the listener hears, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it does matter what your what part you're cluing into. Um, so you've already kind of talked about two different hypothetical listeners of videotape, but the two hypothetical listeners in Pyramid Song are maybe a pianist who wants to hear the rhythm of those piano chords, and then a drummer who's like counting along with the drum part. And, you know, that's in 4-4, and so those piano chords are feeling like syncopations against the 4-4 right. beat. Now, both can coexist because, of course, if you remember those numbers I rattled off a, a second ago, 3-3-4-3-3, three, 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 those add up to 16. And so there right. are 16 16th notes in a bar 4-4. Four, four. Um, but they're grouped differently. Uh, if you're listening to the drum part, it's like... He he rounds off that first bar of four four pretty well there to kind of ruin this or or make the piano chords more syncopated. So it's you know the that song was recorded and basically done, and Phil Selway's drums were the last thing they added. So right, it it would have ended up a very different song if they didn't put that drum part in. I can like I think that both those examples like videotape, but but especially Pyramid Song. Uh, such good examples of that cross-section or the meeting point between experimental and accessible. Absolutely. Because if you're not listening for it on Pyramid Song, it's a beautiful, warm, emotional song. But also, if you're clued into the musicality of it, there are several bits where you'll go, wait, what the fuck is that? What's going on? Like, what, what is yeah. happening here? And that I think that's what makes them such an interesting band to, to analyse, but also just to listen to. You can come at that band from two angles, right? Right, and that's why, you know, 
they've sold as many records as they have, but have people writing books about them. It's it's exactly yeah. the way you pointed out. It's like you can listen to it two totally different ways, and two totally different types of fans come to this band. And I would like I am maybe as 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 a musician myself, although you know not a terribly competent one. Um, uh, that there, there's so much of like the Radiohead catalog that like. I'm attracted to because it's so interesting to me and they're doing things that other bands aren't and they're kind of feeding that bit of me where I'm where I can look at it and go oh that's interesting from like an analytical perspective as well as from an emotional perspective but even like doing the deeper dive through this kind of like I don't know how long the season was I think it was something like 16 months or 14 months or something like that and 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 spending that much time with their discography it just unpicked bits that even I had sort of like never noticed so like to now go back in time from videotape, but forward in time from Pyramid Song. Two plus two equals five mm. on Hail to the Thief. I had never realised was uh, a polyrhythm guitar part over the verse, right? Yeah, it's totally... Uh, that's got to be one of their most experimental songs. And again, you have an aggressive album opener. You know, yeah. they didn't give us time to kind of warm up. And uh, back to those categories of things... I think every single aspect of that song is experimental. It has a weird song form, certainly has a weird rhythm. The harmony is bizarre. Um, you know, the thing that be, mo- might be the most normal about it actually are the instrumental timbres. They kind of brought back the guitar. They brought yeah. back the, the distorted electric guitar, really, for the first time since 1997. I really like Hell to the Thief, man. Like, it, I, it gets a bad rap in a lot of uh, places on the internet. It's it's, uh, always, it's so far down people's rankings a lot of the time, you know. Yeah, it's uh, most people are shocked to learn this, but it's my it's my favorite actually. Uh, that is, I like it, Brad, but that is shocking. That is, yeah. <laughs> that I mean, is and it, it's a pretty easy answer. I have when people ask me, like, "Oh God, why?" Um, it's, <laughs> it's because you you know, as we've talked about, you've got these two different Radiohead bands. You've got a guitar rock band, and you've got a kind of bleepity bloopy electronic band. And to me, two thousand three. <laughs> is the synthesis. It's it's the album in which they kind of bring those two different aspects of themselves together for the first time. And in fact, you could argue that that synthesis happens in the first track, 2 plus 2 equals 5. Because you've got the electronic kind of drum drum machine part. You've yeah. got all these ex- ephemeral kind of bleepity bloops. And then like, what happens? That Pearl Jam era guitar comes in like at two minutes into the song, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it does come across as such a an aggressive, like, yeah, like you said, aggressive or like an upfront kind of like, hey, Radiohead are back to making rock music. But, rock and, I'm, music and I'm doing yeah. the horns. I'm doing the horns uh-huh. and describing them as well. But um, the J- Johnny playing like a polyrhythm with himself, uh, like, I think I think his thumb is in It is. Yeah, and the rest, of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The rest of it is in three or something. Is that right? I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You mean that part? Yeah, so it's, that's, it's, that's, I think that's it's in the same seven. Line. Yeah. Oh, that's in seven. Okay. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I. I mean, <laughs> so much of this podcast has been trying to figure out whatever Johnny Greenwood is doing at any given moment. <laughs> um. Um. Uh. It's it's interesting you talk about the synthesis of kind of like the electronic and the rock kind of those two halves of the Radiohead uh, experience. I don't know why I went with the word experience there. But because um, a lot of people would say that's in Rainbows, right? Yeah, and, and it's probably no coincidence that that's my, my second favorite record or sometimes 
kind of leapfrogs with the 2003 record for that same reason. But yeah, I think in that four-year period, those two records, I think you're right, do come from that same synthesis space. To me, what makes 2007's In Rainbows different is that they were also trying to rope in this maybe uh, more convention, more listener-friendly, more accessible because yeah. they'd already done the whole experimentation thing with the album release format. So it's like, let's put a yes. lot of our experimentation into that and then make the music just a little bit more accessible. Yeah, it feels like they're trying to make a kind of a definitive statement on what the band is mm-hmm. or has been or something like that, which is why I think that the two albums that come after it are kind of them just going like, well, we can do whatever we want to do now. You know, sure. like we've we've proved everything that we need to prove, and and all of that stuff. What's uh, before we move on from in rainbows though? What's going on in weird fishes? Because all I was able to tell people on the podcast is the guitars are in different time signatures or something. That's as far yeah. as I got. Yeah, yeah. Brad, no, that, what's, that's, go- what's going that's, on? That's absolutely true. Um, so there's your polyrhythm you were looking for. So the drums are just like in a really simple four four. Yeah. And you can count all that in four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Like most music. But the guitar is in three. And it's relentless. And so if you're trying to find the parts where various beginnings line up, you've just got to start taking like four times three to the nth power. And I mean, some things I know, right? Some things don't line up more than like every 48 beats or, or things like that. So it's really suspended animation with these two parts that every once in a while come together, but are largely speaking separate streams or flows. And I think, I think then Johnny is playing in a different time signature. Is, 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 is that polyrhythm or is that polymeter? What am I, what am I? Oh no! No one agrees on which which of those words we should say, but they uh, to okay. me mean the same thing. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, when you, when I listened to the record for the first time, uh, you know, I was just thinking, okay, you've got this Johnny guitar part, and you've got the you've got the drums. Um, but then I saw them from the the in the basement sessions. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually Tom playing that part uh, mm-hmm. that I thought was Johnny, and Johnny's also playing three against four, but offset by like another eighth note. So it's like. The level of complexity of what's going on there, I, it's, I, what, what I actually keep coming back to is I, I'm always shocked that it works. Yes. Well, that this once the again, there's yeah. a different way to listen to the song, which is just to chill out and enjoy it, you know? Right, exactly. There's all this stuff. We're talking about such complicated... Well, actually, do you know what? I don't know how complicated it is. It's complicated to me. It's quite complicated. Stuff. Okay, yes, cool. Absolutely. It's quite complicated. But if you switch that bit of your brain off... It just kind of, it's just a jam, right? It's just kind of fucked. Sure. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, it's just a really, it's a good, it's a good time to listen to. Um, I was really interested when, because uh, you kind of listed some songs that you'd like to talk about in like chronological order. And I would have thought like, in terms of like, musical analysis, the stuff that we've talked about, like polyrhythm and polymeter and stuff like that, there would have been loads of stuff to talk about from The King of Limbs. Mm. But you didn't mention a single song from it. What does that kind of speak to for you? Yeah, well, if we go back to that kind of Goldilocks zone where what makes Radiohead so great is their balance of the experimental with the conventional, in my opinion, they just went a little bit too far in the experimentation on The King of Limbs. And a lot of that record, well, 
We know from the album sales that it just didn't quite work. Um, right. And yes. a lot of that has to do with having Clive Deemer, you know, as, as a second percussionist. To me, it's, they, 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 they undertook an experiment. And who can say whether it failed or succeeded, right? But I really appreciate them for that. Or it's like, what would happen to our music if we did have a second percussionist, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The king yeah. of limbs. I mean, it's, almost, it's a bit on the nose, right? That now they have eight <laughs> limbs in the percussion section instead of four. But Brad, I never even thought about that. That is <laughs> that is such a good point, and it's that is so crap. Like that is <laughs> that is such a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, you're right. The balance is kind of out of whack, uh, or at least for the first half, because then the second half I find to be much more emotionally involving. But yeah, also, Codex especially is a, a nice warm yeah. song kind of like you hear that warm vocals like almost like amnesiac uh, and of course lotus flower is very accessible but yeah the beginning that's of the got some rough that's got some interesting stuff going on at lotus flower and i and i love give up the ghost as well but it's kind of mm-hmm. they kind of yeah like you said they don't balance the second half of the album almost doesn't have loads of interesting music kind of worth analyzing uh, you know on the second half and then the first half is all <laughs> right analyzation with not a lot of the emotional heft right i think that's a good way to categorize it and why um yeah what how it could have been better i suppose is to kind of blend those two aspects yeah which actually i think i mean feral good lord (laughs) i mean look i'm a king of limbs defender i love feral uh i won't hear a bad word said against it but i could appreciate that it might (laughs) it might be it might be what some people would describe as a bit much um uh what's interesting to me is that the album that comes next uh i wouldn't say that it's their least experimental album but it's one of their least experimental albums i think but is kind of in the I same think it's way. Accessible, yeah, yeah, it's, I, th- I think it is accessible. But then, in in the same way that the uh, King of Limbs is maybe a bit out of balance, a moon-shaped pool is so emotional, right? It's like so kind of uh, heavy, and uh, it has so much more of that kind of heft to it without the more experimental touches and so it's interesting to me that like um that that album works so much better than the king of limbs even though they both seem to be unbalanced you know right another way to think about a moonshape pool is that um radiohead's most accessible albums at least in their mature phase are 10 years apart uh so if you think about okay computer kind of 10 years to in rainbows and people yeah. talk a lot about the similarities in those records. Yeah. To me, not I, I think more people should be talking about the similarities between In Rainbows and Moonshape Pool being quite accessible records that that are still experimental in their own way, but not on the nose. Not um they don't hitch over the head with the experimentation like King of Limbs did. You know? Do you think that's And of course of... I, I don't like to go ahead. No, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, no, no. My question well, is I, I don't bollocks. like to always bring it. Okay. I, I, the first thing I thought when I heard a moon-shaped pool is that um, 
gosh, it's so emotional. And why wouldn't it be because of what was happening to Rachel at the time? Yeah. Of course, Tom York's partner who dies right around here. It would be hard not to write uh, an emotional album that seems more confessional to me than any Radiohead album. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But I like, I also, I think you're right. Like not as it's their most like confessional, maybe Tom's most personal Radiohead album, but I get the sense from in rainbows that that album is Tom going more personal than he did on the King of Limbs than he did on Hail to the Thief, the two albums that kind of, you know, go either side of that. And also I feel like to then go further back in time, his most personal record is maybe okay. Computer. Like I, I think that speaks a lot about the way like he sees the world and his experience of society and stuff. It's almost like every 10 years, he kind of mm-hmm. check, checks in with himself and starts writing more personally and then gets to deviate from that, um, which is where uh, I mean, Shake Paul fits in. And of course, yeah, the, the True Love true love Waits finally turning up on that record is is a big deal, right? Yeah, I mean, that's... that 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 Putting that as the last track, you know, an album that he's been playing in guitar since the late 90s. Um, at the moment, right when his partner has died, I think it's hard not to read autobiographically into that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the the version they do of that is so um, devastatingly stripped back and, and simple, and it really just lays those, like, emotions bare. But then that's that's not to say that there's no experimental stuff on a Shape pool because you also have kind of um, you've got more of the polyrhythmic stuff in full stop, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you've got there the the main drum beat in six, and the guitar part in five. Um, sometimes in seventeen, if you actually do the counting. Um, that's that's Johnny having some fun with it. Yeah, I think that that's wait, the place wait, where there wait, wait, is wait, the whoa, most experience. Which means sometimes it's in 17, depending on how you count it. Yeah, I know. Well, no, if you count it, because it sounds at first like... It sounds like it's just in five, but yeah. then like every like three bars or something, he breaks and adds a couple more notes. And I think the total ends up with, you know, five plus five plus seven, or 17... That's yeah. uh, mad, and of course, it just it sounds so natural when you are just listening to it, like passively. Sure, and this is yeah, and this is what makes them great. Yeah, they can they can do these things, and you can listen to them casually and naturally, or you can be me and sit there counting your fingers and desperately trying to figure out what's happening. You know, <laughs> um, you mentioned in your email something next to full stop, and it's. Uh, a sequence of three words that has haunted me since we first spoke, Brad. Um, terminally climactic form. What is that? So this is a, a form that Radiohead does not invent. It has a, a short history really dating back to the 90s. But if we think about the most normal thing you can do in a rock song form, which is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, yada, yada, yada. The most important part being you end with the chorus or you end with something that everyone's heard before. Um, starting in the 90s, starting with Karma Police, Radiohead tries something pretty experimental, which is ending songs on new stuff. So there's the terminal bit. Um, and they tend to end these songs, to me, in climactic moments. It's not a throwaway outro, but for example, Karma Police. 
you know, the for a minute there, I lost my, right. to me, is like a climactic moment and it only happens once at the end of the piece. Um, yes. So there's okay. a short list of these things before Radiohead. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible technique we're trying to sell music, right? Because we're, <laughs> someone's flipping the radio dial. You want them to hit that chorus, it's that catchy part, as many times as possible. Yeah. Radiohead's just, to, you know, I think it's also no uh, accident that this is after they've already got a dedicated following. They start doing this. But if you look after Karma Police, they do it a lot. A lot of songs um, end with this material that you haven't heard before. And I call it terminally climactic form. So would, uh, is... Is Weird Fishes an example of that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. I'm with I hit you. The okay. bottom, hit yeah, the yeah, yeah. bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, that was kind of an all too brief kind of uh, jaunt across their whole career, really. Um, I could talk about this stuff for hours, but I don't think our audience would put up with it. <laughs> 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 no, they would. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't uh, say that our... Uh, uh, our audience wouldn't put up with it because I'm, I'm sure they would. Um, but it, it did make me wonder, um, and 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 reading your book made me wonder. I have I have two copies of your book actually because one one I bought for myself, um, and then I think I bought it like one summer, and then of course Christmas came around and people were like, well, what is Adam like? Radiohead. So I got another <laughs> I got another copy of it as a gift. And I was gonna show you both of them, but then I realized that the pile of books behind me is like structurally integral to my house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can't move anything. They're buried beneath something. But when I was reading your book, what what struck me I, and one of the questions that because you've been on our list of guests from like the very beginning of the of the season, since we knew we were gonna do Radiohead. Um I'm interested in your experience of music uh, how how does something that is in big quotes i'm going to do big air quotes worth analyzing how does that correlate to your personal favorites or your enjoyment of songs and music yeah i mean this is a question i get a lot this is like not exactly the way you asked it but people often come up to me and they say god doesn't all that thinking doesn't that just ruin it for you <laughs> Uh, and the answer is hell no. I mean, it, resoundingly, I've never felt like knowing so much about music that's worth studying makes it less enjoyable to listen to. I, I would argue that finding these things in music gives you just even more to listen to, like peeling back layers of an onion or something. But it also matters, you know, what mood are you in? Are you are you in the mood just to roll the windows down and, you know, take a drive and listen to some loud music? Cool. Put on Airbag, the opening track from OK Computer. Not a lot to scratch your beard about in that song. And it's just a great one to, to you know, listen to with that summer vibe. But if you are kind of feeling like it's late at night, maybe you've made yourself like a nice, dark, stiff cocktail, like say like a Manhattan or something. Oh, that's that's a textbook Kid A moment right there. You're going to put on, <laughs> you're going to put on the title track, I think, Kid A. Um, oh, yeah just kind of sink down into that couch and just enjoy the sounds kind of, uh, yeah. Enjoy that vocal timbre, enjoy the weirdness of it, you know? Yeah. And if there's some people listening to this that are like, I want to start listening to music the way that Brad listens to music. How do you, how do you suggest people kind of lock into that? Where, where do they right. start? 
Well, don't don't start by going to grad school and, and studying to get a PhD <laughs> yeah. in music theory. People, <laughs> I think people forget that before I was an academic, like I was a drummer in a punk band. I was living in a van uh, touring. Um, you know, I very much am a practicing musician. And I think the best way to understand songs is to learn them, to get them under your fingers. So learn those guitar parts, learn the drum parts, practice singing like Tom York. Feel how it feels to sing that way. Um, practice those bass parts. I think that's the best way to actually understand any kind of music is to is to to play it. Wow, yeah, that's that's good advice. Uh, yeah, my appreciation for music definitely opened up as soon as I decided to buy a cheap acoustic guitar and start figuring out how to play my favorite songs and stuff like that. You know, yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. Thank you so much for this, Brad. Thank you for 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 joining us where can uh where can people find more of you there's obviously everything that's right place analyzing radiohead by brad osborne uh sure. but where else can people go i'm on twitter at radiohead book um i'm not on there much but uh you know shout out i'll hit you back at radiohead book it's, it's a difficult place to be these days twitter i know right yeah um, but, you know, I'm also very easy to find because I am a kind of public academic. So send me a good old-fashioned email at bradmusic at ku.edu. How did you get that? How did you get bradmusic as an email address? That's well, I'll tell you cracking. what, faculty, yeah, faculty comes with some privileges, and getting to yeah. set up multiple email aliases is one of my favorite ones. Uh, <laughs> can you talk about anything that you, have, that you have coming up, anything that you've got in the works? Are we allowed to talk about any of that? Sure, that's fine. I have a, um, a music theory textbook under contract with Oxford University Press. Shout out to uh, Radiohead's hometown press yeah. there uh, that I've co-authored with a woman named Christine Boone. And that is going to be, I don't say a revolutionary book, but whereas people dreaded going to their music theory class because it's all Beethoven, all Brahms, um, ours is all Beyonce, all Rihanna. So it's learning music theory with Music that uh, that today's students care about, and I think it's going to make a really big hit. That sounds perfect. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy that because that sounds like exactly my kind of thing. Thank you that's so much, great. Brad. That that's yeah. that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Hey, it's me again, uh, and the me is Adam. That was my chat with Brad Osborne, which I loved. You can hear us just completely uh, geeking out over Radiohead, which I don't know. Maybe it was uh, more fun for me than it was for you, but I hope not. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, it brings us to the end of another episode. I was going to read an email, but it feels weird without the other guys here. And I want them to be able to, you know, interact with your emails and hear what you've written. So uh, I'm not going to. So that's just the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, our next episode is out next Monday. Come and join us for that. Before you do, if this interview, if this conversation has sparked anything that you would like to talk about, come and find us. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at What Is Music Pod, TikTok at What Is Music. And you can send in something a little bit longer and I will read it when the other guys are here. Email us, What Is Music Pod at gmail.com and if you liked what you heard here and thought i'd like to hear more of that head over to our patreon page we've got extra shows we've got the magic preacher show we've got the ultimate playlist show uh we've got bonus commentaries music discussion episodes ad free episodes of this show uh, a really amazing discord community and it's all kind of available for free sort of you can there's a free trial you can do that's seven days long so if you want to try before you buy you can do that we would encourage that um Head to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes. Two podcast episodes every week. There you go. There are other ways you can support us if you'd like to. 
buy our merchandise over at whatismusicpod.redbubble.com. Send us a little one-off donation on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com slash whatismusic. Best way to support us is still what you're doing right now, which is listening to us. You can rate the show, subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, all the stuff that podcasts ask you to do. That about does it. Thanks again for listening. And you're going to get it uninterrupted this time. Uninterrupted because there's nobody else here. Don't leave me high. Don't leave me dry. Bye. <laughs>